Well, I think the first thing is to remember that we're all there for the same reason, that we all want to do the right thing. And the lawyers are there to help the court do that. And the court's questions uh, are part of its attempt to, to make sure they get it right. So I think that remembering the common enterprise, even though people have very different roles in the process is important. And the other thing is to remember that um, generally speaking, the Supreme Court is hearing a matter that raises a question of principle. And so don't get lost in the details. Welcome to Of Counsel. I'm your host, Sean Robichaud. Join us as our podcast profiles remarkable legal advocates from all areas of law, the professionals of persuasion, the catalysts of social change, defenders of the downtrodden, protectors of social order, and the mercenaries of corporate interests. Those who, with the power of words alone, can shape the laws of nations, define human rights, and preserve or take away the liberty of another human being. Who are these lawyers? What are their secrets? And how do they balance it all? Court is now in session. All rise. This episode's Of Counsel podcast is particularly special as we host a former judge of the Supreme Court of Canada, the Honourable Justice Tom Cromwell. After an illustrious career in practice, then sitting as a judge on the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, and then eight years on the Supreme Court of Canada, Justice Cromwell now acts as senior counsel to Borden Ladner Gervais and shares his time between the Toronto and Vancouver offices. Join us as Justice Cromwell discusses advocacy, the importance of access to justice, the future of law, music, food, safaris, and tips on how we can ensure our justice system maintains its relevance moving forward on this episode of Of Counsel. Well, in a way, I guess my legal career got started almost by accident. I, as you may know, was a music major in undergrad and was thinking of making a career in that field. And as the further I got into it, the less confident I felt that that was really where I should be. And almost unthinkable today given the competition to get into law school, but I just wandered into the law school at Queen's and spoke to the the woman who they called in those days the secretary of the faculty, really the registrar, and asked her what, you know, the process was to apply to law school. And, and I said, you know, I, I'm a music major. I don't imagine that is what you're looking for. And she said, oh, no, that'll be fine. As long as you haven't taken any sociology, you're fine. <laughs> and... Uh, so I, I applied and I got really sick in the early winter of that year. I guess it would have been 73. And I had applied to do a master's degree in music analysis at University College London. And I'd applied to go to law school at Queen's. And on Thursday morning, my acceptance to law school arrived and I sent back an acceptance immediately before they changed their minds as I <laughs> thought this was likely an error. And on Monday, my rejection from University College London arrived. So I was off to law school. <laughs> and uh, I just went into it on the basis that if I liked it, I'd stick with it. And if I didn't, I'd maybe look around some more. And by about Christmas time, I was completely hooked. Um, I'm, I'm very curious about um, 
your study in music because this wasn't just it seems to me from um, your you know you were a part of the Royal Conservatory of Music in 1974 uh, and then you just discussed your music degree at Queens um, what was there not a point where you thought um, you've spent so much time into music H- how is it that you law overrode that passion well, I actually reached the conclusion that I wasn't going to have the career in music that I had hoped for. I just felt that I wasn't sufficiently talented to really do what I wanted to do. I think the best thing that ever happened to me was that while I was in music school, I went to New York and hung around people from Juilliard and so on. And I just realized I was not in this league at all. <laughs> I was pretty good in Kingston, but Manhattan, not so much. And... Uh, so that's when I really started looking around. What lessons did you learn uh, during law school, whether it be your articles or, or during school or just generally as a younger lawyer that you feel have uh, you've carried with you today, uh, even into the even onto the bench? Well, I guess the main thing for a litigator is to learn preparation. And I was very lucky that during my law school days, I did a lot of uh clinical work in the penitentiaries around Kingston. We had a big correctional law project run by Professor Ron Price in those days. Right. Still very popular program at Queen's. And- yes. And it's going through a bit of a, a renaissance right now. I think they're back into the test case litigation business, which, which is what we did. Um, so very exciting. But Ron was a complete stickler for preparation. He Every, every case was prepared within an inch of its life, if I can put it that way. Yeah. And then when I went off to article, I was lucky to get an articling job at Weir Folds, which was a small but quite litigation-heavy firm. I think in those days there were about 25 or 30 lawyers and half the practice was litigation. And again, I was lucky to have a couple of wonderful mentors there. The man who became Justice, Mr. Justice Austin, of the Court of Appeal was the managing partner, big litigator. Brian Finley, who's now nearing retirement, was about a 10-year call when I started. And they really emphasized the importance of excellent preparation. So I think that stuck with me. Did you know at an early stage that litigation would be your um, calling in law or, or did you feel as though it came rather serendipitously? No, absolutely. Once I got into doing mooting in, in second year and then because of the correctional law work, we actually got to do a little bit of court work as students. I was again hooked. <laughs> uh, what about your present practice? You're now counsel at uh, Border Ladner Gervais, um, and there are, uh, among many other things, um, you're very active in pro bono work, uh, particularly uh, in advocating for pension benefits by way of federal judicial review, um, and I'm sure many other things. So tell me about your what you're presently doing there. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing a lot of what I imagine you would think a retired judge would do. Uh, I'm giving a lot of advice on appeals especially, but also motions and trials, doing a lot of reviewing of briefs, both within the firm and outside. People retain me to look at their material and so on, give them advice. Uh, I'm doing a fair number of mock hearings uh, for people who are going off to a trial or an appeal and want to run the arguments uh, before somebody with experience. I've been doing a fair bit of that. I've been doing a little bit of mediation, which I've enjoyed. I didn't set out to do it, but it just sort of arrived. So I took it on and, and liked it very much. 
And then within the firm, I'm active in the professional development side of the the office. Uh, BLG runs a whole series of courses that which they call BLGU uh, 101, 201, 301, and so on up to 7 or 801. And uh, I'm involved in some of that on the more on the litigation training side. We had a wonderful uh, running of BLG 301 last uh, fall in Toronto, in Montreal, excuse me. We brought in about 50 associates from across the country at the sort of three to five year range and put them through a National Institute of Trial Advocacy style program. And it was great for the training. We brought in some American judges, some U.S. lawyers, plus our own folks. And it was not only a great training event, but it was fabulous for team building. Wow, that sounds like a, a great program. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, I'm also supporting the pro bono efforts of the firm. It's uh, David Scott, who was one of the leaders of pro bono in Ontario, was a partner in the Ottawa office, and Guy Pratt, who has also been ex- heavily involved, uh, is a partner in Toronto and Ottawa and Montreal. Yeah, it's something that, um, from what I see in the papers, that you seem to be very passionate about, um, particularly as it relates to access to justice. And I I definitely want to return to that because I think there's a lot to be said. Um, But I I want to ask, um, because you're our first judge on our podcast. Former judge. Former judge. (laughs) Um, And and, um, what... uh, uh, there's some questions that we can't ask other people. And one that I've always wondered um, is what does it feel like to get, um, I don't know if it's a call or a letter or you're going to be appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada. What does that feel like? It sort of takes your breath away. Uh, I got my call from the prime minister while I was on a train. If you can imagine, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I was headed, I was on the national jury charge committee uh, of the Canadian judicial council. I did that for yes, 10 or 12 years. We tried to draft model charges in both official languages. And right, right. In, in plain language or as close to plain language as lawyers are capable of getting. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I was on my way to a jury committee meeting on the train, having dropped my son at school in Kingston, at Queens. And so I was heading back to Montreal for the meeting and my cell phone rang. And it was a woman's voice I didn't recognize and said she was calling from the prime minister's office and the prime minister wanted to speak to me. And I suspected that it was some of my Montreal friends had (laughs) really put this on um, because obviously my name had been in the press and so on as one of the people who might be considered for the appointment. And I nearly said, oh, nice try and hung up, but I thought perhaps I'd better play this one straight. And sure enough, uh, about five minutes later, the prime minister called me. I had time to go to the back of the train car and stand among the coats and so on at the the end of the car, speaking to the prime minister about being appointed to the Supreme Court of Canada. It seemed a little odd. But what an amazing <laughs> image and contrast here standing among the coats on a train. <laughs> so that's how that call came. Wow, that's fantastic. And... Um, when you're, uh, you know, you've you've spent, uh, I think, what was it, almost nine years on the on the bench in the Supreme yeah, Court. Eight on the Supreme Court and almost twelve on the Court of Appeal. Is there any decision that you feel particularly proud of being part of um, during your time in either courts? That um, you know, no doubt there are, there are many to discuss, but is there one in particular or two that you feel you feel really proud of being part of? Yeah, I mean, that both courts, you know, did an awful lot of great work and I was 
proud of being part of many decisions that I didn't write myself, but was part of the decision-making process. I think of, of ones that I held the pen, if I can put it that way. Probably a one that was the most fun to work on was the downtown east side case involving standing, because my first academic project of any size was a book, little book on standing that was published in 1986. And sort of 30 years later to be writing the unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court of Canada on the topic seemed hard to imagine. <laughs> but so that was a, kind of a personal thrill given my academic interest in the in the subject. Mm -hmm. And what about, um, what does it feel like uh, sitting, you know, we, we hear stories all the time of advocates when they go into the Supreme Court of Canada, and I can't remember who said it, it might have been Eddie Greenspan, where they just keep coming. <laughs> There's nine judges and they just keep coming out. And um, I'm, I'm curious what it feels like on the other side, um, looking at all of these lawyers who've come from across the nation um, to advocate something that is probably the utmost important thing in their entire career uh, many times, uh, especially as interveners who've worked on a long time. Uh, what feeling do you get up there sitting there with your colleagues? Well, I must say that the the experience on the Supreme Court of Canada made me a much quieter judge than I'd been on the Court of Appeal, um, really because the time limits are short. And there's, as you say, there are so many of us that I felt very conscious of the fact that if everyone on the bench asked even one question of any substance, um, it really was going to take away about half of the time allowed for counsel. So I'm afraid it made it made me awfully quiet. Uh, I think as a judge on the court, I really felt that I would only interrupt counsel and ask something if I felt it was extremely important to my own decision making. Um, I sometimes wonder if the time limits aren't a little too strict on the court. I, the background, of course, of those time limits uh, is from the period when the court was overwhelmed with work. Um, I was executive legal officer for Chief Justice Lemaire in the 90s, 92 to 95. And at that time, the court was really just coming out of a period of really being behind in its work. Uh, each of the years I was there, the court produced over 130 judgments on appeal compared to about 60 to 70 nowadays. So you, Did you, you see that a product of um, the enactment of the charter and a lot of the litigation? That was part of it, yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. And it really started um, in the mid-80s, and then there was a lot of illness on the court, which mm -hmm. didn't help, and so on, for a number of reasons. But Chief Justice Lemaire told me that when he joined the court, what would that have been, about 1980, I think, for the first five years he was on the court, he never sat on anything but what were called in those days remnants. Those are cases that were not heard in the year in which they were inscribed for hearing, but were put off to the next year. For five years, he never heard anything else, which is quite a different experience now in going to the court. It's much more up to date. So that was when a lot of these time frame limitations came into play? Yeah, so that part of the strategy for dealing with the delays was to get more help for the judges in terms of law clerks to um, streamline the hearing process. Because at one time, if you had a case in the court, you would just go up, you'd be on the list to be heard, 
and people would go up and stay at the Chateau Laurier for several days until their case was called and somebody would sort of be watching as how the list was progressing. Wow. And so obviously when you're facing the kind of workload they had, that kind of port and cigars approach wasn't going to work anymore. And so the time limits were brought in and I think they've worked pretty well and page limits on factums and so on. But I, I must say that occasionally I've wondered if given the activity level of the bench, we got as much as we could have got out of council. But surely brevity is an important aspect of advocacy. And I wonder, um, do you see if that's true? It, you know, I, my first question is, is, is that important? And my other question is, what are some of the other key traits you see to success uh, in appellate advocacy, particularly before the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, I mean, I think brevity is good, but there are two things to remember, I think. One is that not everything can be uh, expressed thoroughly and briefly. Mm -hmm. uh, succinctness, I think, is more the skill. That, because something can be brief but not succinct. And something can be succinct but not brief, if you're following my word game here. Um, and the other thing is we have to remember that not every lawyer that's going to appear in the Supreme Court has the confidence or the experience to do the level of advocacy that you might hope to have in the final court of appeal. And I think, you know, you have well-prepared lawyers who know the case. They may not be Clarence Darrow, but you need to give them a full opportunity to get the case out. Uh, and so not often, but from time to time, I was concerned that a lawyer really hadn't been able to get their argument out the way they'd hoped to. Uh, because we were uh, all over them, if I, if I can put it that way. In one of our earlier podcasts, our first, in fact, um, we spoke to uh, Gerald Chan, uh, who I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, and he, I asked him what it was like for him um, to first step before the Supreme Court of Canada and make his arguments. And needless to say, like I'm sure every other advocate, he's very nervous. And um, I wonder what advice would you give to a very accomplished and very um, capable um, appellate lawyer who's first coming before and feeling that nerve of, of feeling that perhaps, do I have what it takes up here? Well, I think the first thing is to remember that we're all there for the same reason, that we all want to do the right thing. And the lawyers are there to help the court do that. And the court's questions uh, are part of its attempt to, to make sure they get it right. So I think the remembering the common enterprise, even though people have very different roles in the process, is important. And the other thing is to remember that, um, generally speaking, the Supreme Court is hearing a matter that raises a question of principle. And so don't get lost in the details. I think one of the hardest things for counsel is to live with a case through the trial and court of appeal level and then switch to the kind of thinking that's needed for an appeal to the Supreme Court. Some people never get over that evidentiary objection they lost on day three of the trial and nobody cares anymore <laughs> except them. Uh, so it really it really does require another mindset. And I, I know that it's very expensive to try to bring in appellate counsel but it really is worthwhile bringing in somebody who has more appellate experience at 
at that stage because it really does. I've, I've seen it many times in giving advice within the firm and to other firms that the the approach to the Supreme Court was just much too focused on details that won't be of any interest to the court. The court granted leave, if it, assuming it's an appeal by leave, to get to a point of principle. And the court's looking for assistance with that, not with a bunch of other stuff that may have been important at an earlier stage. How far um, does advocacy go in the Supreme Court of Canada? And the, the, the subpart to that question is, um, are cases won ever in oral argument? Are you ever persuaded um, with a small point by argument alone? Number one, absolutely. I mean, I believe strongly in the value of oral argument. John Sapinka always said when he was asked this question that oral advocacy was only about 15% of the, of the win factor. And I guess my advice would be a little different in the sense that it's kind of a useless percentage because you don't know which percentage you're in. <laughs> so you have to give it your best shot every time. And sure, there are many cases where after you've studied the judgments below, you've studied all the factums, the interveners, you you go into the courtroom with some idea of where you think the thing should land. I mean, you'd be less than human if, if you, you, or you'd be unprepared if you, if you didn't. But uh, I think counsel should always approach oral argument with the perspective that it is a very important opportunity to help the court with any problems it's having, uh, and also to really put in a succinct way why it is their client's position ought to be preferred. So I think oral argument is very important at all levels and counsel should approach it as if it was 100% of the case, whether it's 15 or 35 or whatever it may be in a particular matter. I'm, I'm becoming very fascinated with the advocacy side of things and there's so much to talk about, but I have one final question about this because as you're talking, so much is going through my mind of imagining being there and arguing before court. I've always been curious, what is happening when uh, a justice will engage a lawyer uh, in, in the context of appellate advocacy? I'm sure you know every engagement has its own context, but generally, what is the judge why is the judge asking questions of the lawyer at that point in time, if, if it could even be put into a generalization like that? Yeah, well, I'd probably better if I just speak about me rather than what sure. others may be doing. Please, but thank you. I, I guess I would ask a question for two reasons. One is I honestly don't know the answer and I'm confused <laughs> looking for help. Um, and second of all, I like to get prepared before argument when I can to the point where I can ask the party who I think is going to lose the question about why I think they're going to lose. Right. Wow. And I don't always get there because that's in some very complex matters. You just, at least for me, the preparation just didn't get that far. But my goal of preparation was always to be able to ask the party who I was inclining to think was going to be unsuccessful and sort of put the killer point to them mm -hmm. and get their response. And it's a valuable exercise because often you do get the response mm -hmm. and you realize that your analysis has been defective and 
you need to go back to the drawing board. So again, another reason why oral argument I think is very important. It's very, very valuable advice. Thank you for that. Um, I want to turn to um, your passion towards access to justice. Um, it seems uh, particularly as of late, you become very passionate about this subject. Um, after leaving the court, Chief Justice McLaughlin asked you to remain as the chair of the Canadian Forum on Civil Justice Action Committee, addressing issues relating to access to justice for civil and family matters. And the CBC had quoted you in saying, I think our processes tend to be too complicated. Legal services are not available to some of the people who need them because they fall in the cracks between legal aid and being able to fund lawyers. We need to have more focus on the needs of the people. Um, what did you mean by that quote? And um, where do you see the efforts most strongly needed in access to justice areas? Well, I think the quote pretty much speaks for itself because I think just about everybody recognizes that there's a huge gap in access to legal services, that legal aid covers certain things for certain income levels. Uh, but there's a big gap between where that ends and the the ability of people to retain private counsel. So that's what I was talking about there. In terms of the, the bigger picture, I don't think there's any one thing that needs to be done. I think there are a lot of things that need to be done. One is a real look at legal services, how they're made available, how they're marketed, how they're priced because I believe that there's a significant, un, completely unserved market of people who have some ability to pay for legal services, but can't connect with those services uh, in the marketplace. So it's a failure really of our profession to, to service a market. If you look at some of the statistics that Julie McFarlane at Windsor has put together on self-represented litigants, for example, you'll see that a surprisingly high proportion of those people make more than $50,000 a year. Mm -hmm. Not your kind of stereotypical image of the self-represented person. Right. And you marry that number with the fact that I think in Ontario, something in the order of 56% of people appearing in the Superior Court in, the, in family law matters, uh, at least 56% of those cases have one self, at least one self-represented person. So there's a huge failure of delivering services. Uh, so that's one piece of it. Another piece is, do we need as elaborate a process for many things? Is our system delivering practical outcomes for people or is it delivering a lot of process and no results? Um, I don't think we've really even begun to take that challenge seriously yet. Third area is the front end of the system that we don't do nearly enough in terms of triage to get people connected with help they need early so that we could get early resolution of some of these matters. And I don't think our services are nearly integrated enough so that we, you know, the lawyers are picking away at the legal problem and a host of other people may be looking at the social and economic and other issues but they're all part of the same person and it's not servicing that person's needs effectively to divide up their problems in that way. So there, I think there, there's a whole spectrum of things that need to be worked on. Do you have optimism that this will change for the better in the next five to 10 years? And if so, where might that come from? 
Well, I'm always optimistic, but I'm not um, holding my breath, I guess mm. <laughs> put it that way. Um, I think increasingly a number of people, and I'm one of them, recognize that we need very fundamental systemic change, which is very hard to bring about in any area of society, and especially in something that, to a degree, rightly is so rooted in tradition. I mean, there are many of our traditions in our legal system that are great and should be preserved. But I think we also need to get a little more realistic about whether we're meeting people's needs and we pretty clearly are not. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just to uh, run with that a little bit, you know, you mentioned um, processes um, over the result. And I can tell you as a defense lawyer, I mean, so much of what we do is going to court and adjourning and adjourning and adjourning. And I often will say to our clients, you know, imagine, um, going to the bank in the 1980s and you have to go in person every time and deposit your book and you can't do it online. And that's some of the challenges. And frankly, that's sometimes how our own fees um, end up escalating to a point where um, it's difficult. And I'm not sure what the solution is. And, you know, I'm I'm someone who's very um, supportive of technology, but um, I guess this is a segue into asking, do you see technology um, helping us get past some of these problems um, in access to justice? Oh, I think so. I think technology has a lot of potential um, in so many ways. I mean, one of the most interesting innovations I think that's happening in Canada today is the Civil Resolution Tribunal in British Columbia that is basically an online dispute resolution platform. Uh, It started out being for condominium disputes, owners within a condominium or a strata corporation as they're called in, in British Columbia. But it's also uh, now including some of the uh, work of the small claims court. And I believe the intention, if it's successful, is to spread it into other regulatory areas so that people can do a lot of dispute resolution work at their computer or at the computer in the library if they don't have their own. uh, And then only goes to hearing once the issues are narrowed and a and it's essential that there be a hearing that that can be arranged. But so that's one piece. The other sort of more day to day end of it, all kinds of apps are being developed. Uh, sure. Yeah. I did a little piece in the lawyers daily a month or so ago on a project at Thompson rivers university, one of our newest law schools in Canada and professor Katie Sykes and her students to have an app course where they, uh, the the work the project for the year is to design an app and how she, cool is that she has a <laughs> well well that's exactly what I said yeah. and they have a platform that apparently is pretty user friendly to build an app on and so one of the young women whose mother is a family lawyer built an intake app for family law so that a client before they even go to see the lawyer can fill out all the basic information that the lawyer will need to give initial advice, can do it on their own time, send it in to the lawyer, greatly reducing the intake time at the office, Mm -hmm. reducing the fee the client is paying because they're basically doing a lot of the work that a law clerk or a student or somebody might have done previously. Mm -hmm. So right from sort of everyday applications through to whole platforms, Technology's just got to be the a part of the answer to the access to justice puzzle. Mm-hmm. Do you are you concerned at all about potential uh, 
degradation in the application of law and principles with these sorts of things? Or do you see technology hear more about processes and things that don't have the same concern? Yeah, I think, I mean, technology is whatever you use it for. So Mm -hmm. I, I don't think technology is a is ever a bad thing it's what's done with it may not be great but i mean let's face it the the biggest threat right now to the development of the law is private arbitration and that's got nothing to do with technology i mean retired judges are making a fortune because nobody wants to go to court right it's too expensive I shouldn't say nobody but the, the people who have the resources to take the exit do it in droves Right, because not only is it expensive, and we were just discussing before, it takes a long time to get to court now in a civil yes, context in particular. It's very public, and you have no input over the adjudicator. So you're, you know, putting a bet the company case before someone who have, may end up having no background in corporate law at all. Um, so, I mean, there are many attractions. And I have nothing against it in, in principle, except that if you divert a lot of work away from the courts, you're also losing the development of the common law, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I mean, I can understand parties are not that interested in developing the jurisprudence at their expense, (laughs) but it's unfortunate that in a way that people feel they can't get the kind of resolution that they need in the courts. What would you say um, about, you know, um, there's, I've always faced as a defense lawyer, this common sort of chorus of, you know, why should we give anyone any money to the legal aid um, um, funding um, to people to help them out, particularly in criminal justice? Uh, What do you see as the importance of a healthy legal aid system within the Canadian uh, justice system? Well, I'm not sure we have one, so perhaps it's hard to know. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, I think that legal representation by professional lawyers is extremely important to protect the fabric of rights. And it's not just in criminal matters. Obviously, it's extremely important there. But the level of legal aid support in important areas in family law, for example, in domestic violence is not where I think it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently attended an event at the Rise Women's Center in Vancouver, which is a legal clinic staffed by UBC, the Allard School of Law students, and then a couple of supervising lawyers, and then a lot of volunteer lawyers. And they work mainly in the area of helping women who are in situations of domestic violence and related family law issues, they have a waiting list of over 100 women. Mm-hmm. And just how heartbreaking that is. Um, now, recently in British Columbia, some new legal aid funding for family law was announced. So there's some positive signs. So I don't want to be completely negative about things. But legal, there's a reason people go to law school. And Uh, There's a reason that people who don't go to law school often don't do a very good job of representing themselves. And I think that while doing whatever we can to help people who through circumstances or choice are representing themselves is valuable and important work, it's much more valuable and important work to figure out ways to get people professional legal assistance. Mm 
What does a great day look like to you, Justice Cromwell? Oh, <laughs> oh, well, I guess a great day is having interesting work uh, with interesting people mm-hmm. and people who are enjoying the work in the same way that I do. And so I'm very fortunate at BLG to have those days just about every day. And right now you're um, in between the Vancouver and Ottawa office Correct. mostly. Yeah. Um, do you see a, uh, going back to the access of justice issue, but do you see um, a very strong difference between the Ontario approach and the BC approach within the courts? Um, I don't think so much within the courts, but certainly the approach to the broader question of access to justice is significantly different in British Columbia. Um, British Columbia has in place probably the the broadest coalition of access to justice partners anywhere in the country called Access to Justice BC. It's a group of about 40 people from across sectors, not, not all lawyers, not all judges, um, and chaired by the Chief Justice of British Columbia, who's a, a very strong leader of that so that there's there's a more i think there's a more unified approach now lots of interesting things happening in ontario with the action group convened through the law society uh and lots of other work going on but i i think that in my senses in ontario we haven't really yet reached the point where we have a strong guiding coalition for access to justice work which i think is very important I think that's being developed in British Columbia in a way that it's not yet being developed lots of other places, including here. Do you see um, one key committee or uh, initiative that, if Ontario, would make a big difference very quickly? I'm not, I don't think that you're likely to, to accomplish much for long with sort of the one big gesture. I mean, I, I think that's part of what we've learned over the years is that we uh, declare victory and leave. Mm-hmm. Um a little too often. Um, I think that we need to work on the culture, which is hard work. Um, we need to work. I think we, we need to get rid of the grand scheme. I think that in the past we've tended to say, oh, well, if we just completely revise our rules of court or we completely do this, that, or the other thing, everything will be better. Guess what? It wasn't. Um, and so I think we need to be a lot more strategic, um, a lot more specific, and not try something unless we have some way of knowing at the end of it whether it helped. So often we, you know, put reforms in place and five years later really don't have a sense of whether they were successful or not. Um, okay, moving back to the personal, I got distracted again there with... <laughs> Don't get uh, me going. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting. And more importantly, it's essential, I think, you know, that we discuss this because uh, there is a lot of change that's needed. You know, we only see the criminal side, but you raise a lot of very interesting points on the family side, on victim side. Um, but moving back to perhaps a more lighthearted topic, um, what do you do to escape the law is there some sort of as i often say soul food that keeps you going <laughs> maybe it's still music i'm sure you're still passionate with that yeah i mean i try to get to some concerts and stuff i'm not personally active in in music at this point i really enjoy spending a little time in the kitchen to be honest oh, really yeah <laughs> and uh i also try to get away on at least one you know moderately exotic trip 
a year uh, completely away from law and anything about law and mostly away from lawyers yeah and, with, the, with the phone off I'm sure judges. well actually I'm I'm a little bit bad that way is that it's more relaxing for me if I can be in touch daily so I I always take my phone and I usually check emails every day I have enough signal to do so <laughs> but I don't engage with them other than to the bare minimum right um, of asking somebody to remind me about it when I get back <laughs> or something or something really urgent. But that's just, I find it more relaxing that way. I'm not worrying about it. Um, but I, I have taken, after I joined the Supreme Court, I realized I needed to just get out uh, more. And so I started taking three or four week trips in, in the, mostly in the summer because that's when you can get away in that job. But, um, you know, safaris in Africa and camping in the outback in Australia and hiking in Slovenia and so on and so forth. Just great experiences. Is there anything that you have to go to court with? For me, I've had the same briefcase for 15 years now, and I feel like if I go to court without it, I feel a little bit lost. Is there something like that for you, even a ritual or? Not really, no. no. I, um, I guess we all get into because I don't go to court anymore, but the we all get into some sort of pattern. So my pattern at the Supreme Court was always to spend the, the last half hour before a hearing with my law clerk who was working on that file. Because oftentimes that case is never going to be clearer to you than it is that morning, uh, both going into court and then hopefully coming out as well and then coming out of the meeting of the court discussing it that there's something about that morning that you've got to try to preserve. So I always tried to do that. I was very old fashioned about my dress in court. I think I'm the only person anymore who actually wore real wing collars that you had to import from the United Kingdom. And I was the butt of many jokes about this and wondering where my white gloves were and so on. But, <laughs> right. but, but I love those. My mom brought some from Dublin when she was last there and I hadn't seen them before and they're fantastic. Yeah. Well, if you ever need some more, let me know because <laughs> I, I, I don't, I have lots and nobody to wear them. <laughs> but when you, when you lose the, it comes with all the accoutrement that if you lose, then you end up uh, rummaging through your bag for paper clips. And <laughs> <laughs> We've all been there, Sean. <laughs> Um, what is the largest change that you've seen in the practice of law over the past 10, 20 years? Um, and uh, where do you see it going in the next 10 to 20? Or where you'd hope to see it going in the next 10 to 20? Well, like, it's hard to, to say maybe just one, but maybe mention a couple. One is technology, as we were discussing mm -hmm. in a way earlier. you got to remember, when I was called to the bar in 1979, nobody had a computer in their office. There were, you know, typewriters with correcting things. And then I think we had a, a mag card or something that had a small memory uh, in it. Uh, fax machines were, were new uh, at that time. I remember I took a a, a leave of absence from teaching to go back and work at Weirfolds for a while. It was, that was the first time I'd seen a fax machine used in practice. Uh, when I articled, we had a huge room that had a teletype machine in it. 
and I was sent to New York to deliver a letter uh, on a closing. So if you just imagine that world and look at what we're doing now when we email documents around the world and scan signatures and I mean so much of the pace and manner of practice has changed uh, no more telephone tag I mean I don't know about in your world but I'm almost startled when my telephone rings uh, because you have so few phone calls uh, that everything's done by email and then people can deal with it at a time that's convenient to them rather than having the phone ringing and leaving endless voicemail messages and so on. So just the whole way of carrying out the business has changed dramatically over my 40 odd years at the bar. What's interesting about that is, you know, in reading one of the CBC articles on your retirement, um, you indicated that, you know, when you were on the bench, it was still an 80 hour work week. So despite the efficiencies that technology has brought us, it doesn't seem to have allowed for more freedom in many ways. And I think probably the opposite in, in mm-hmm. some ways, because clients and associates can get at you 24 <laughs> seven. <laughs> well, you need to turn your phone off when you're on safaris. That's the, <laughs> well, yeah, I do, but I check them every day. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, our firm and I'm sure many others have service standards that the expectation is that an email will be answered within four hours of getting it and so on. And I think they're all reasonable standards. We don't all live up to them every time, but it's what we're trying to do and which I think is good and in the client's interest, but it makes it challenging to, to juggle everything. So my last question to you is if you could run an ad um, for 30 seconds on a Stanley Stanley Cup final game between the Leafs and Canadians. This is getting far too hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we can we can dream. And and if we were able to do that and if somehow that ad, we found it important enough to be about something law related. Um, now we're really getting out there. But what would it say to the nation that if you if you could let everyone in the nation know your elevator speech on what's important or what they should know about the justice system, what would it be? Yeah, I don't know exactly what the ad would say, but the idea of it would be to try to help people who are not involved in the legal system understand why they should care about there being an effective civil and family justice system in our country. I think most people don't ever think about it. They don't realize how an effective civil justice system is really the basis of civil society and it's the basis of commerce. It's the basis of security of transactions, of the protection of intellectual property, of so many things that are essential to an effective and functioning economy. And yet, most people, I think, take it totally for granted and frankly have no understanding of why they should be worried about this. Tom Cromwell, thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciate being on our podcast. Um, I'm sure this one will be very well listened to. And uh, I I can't promise we'll reach the nation, but I'm sure many lawyers will at least uh, take a a lot from what you had to say today. Well, thanks, Sean. And thank you for doing uh, what you're doing with these podcasts. And I think it's really in the public interest. Thank you very much.